Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to be looking at the first six verses here this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, if you would please uh, remain standing and rise, that is, as we uh, honor the public reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. O oh, Father, there is such a clear distinction between your people and those who are not your people. There are the visible differences that are put between us through the sacraments, but Lord, there is also a very clear difference between us in terms of the way in which we walk in this life, a way of holiness versus a way of wickedness. And Lord, we see in every age the church has been under extraordinary pressure to give up the way of holiness, the way of righteousness, for the sake of the way of the world. And Lord, very often your people fail to stand firm. But Lord, very often as well, by your Spirit, you have given strength to your people so that they would be able to stand. Lord, how we do pray that you would even strengthen us this morning as we look at this particular topic from your word, as we look at Peter's explanation for how we are to stand and Lord, that you would strengthen us so that in our age, it might be clear that your church, relying on you, is given the strength to live in such a way that it is honoring and pleasing to you. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I prayed, the scriptures make very clear that there are two paths in this world. There are two ways of living, two ways to go through life. Think of the two ways as are set out in Psalm 1. There is the man first who uh, meditates on the law of God day and night. It is his great delight. And on the other hand, there is uh, the way of the wicked, the scoffer, who uh, the psalmist is saying, don't sit in the seat of the scoffer or don't stand in the way of the sinner or go in the path of the ungodly, but rather you are to meditate on the law of God. There are two ways that are set before us in the scriptures. 
Think of the of what Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount. There are two paths, two, two ways. There's the broad way that leads to destruction. There's the narrow way that leads to life. There are two kinds of trees, one that bears good fruit, one that bears bad fruit. There are two kinds of people who profess obedience to God. There are two kinds of ways to build upon uh, a house on a foundation. There are those who build their life upon the rock, and there are those who build their life upon the sand. There is always the way of righteousness, and there is the way of wickedness, and there is always there is always pressure that comes from those who are on the path, the way of wickedness, to uh, put pressure on those who are walking in the way of righteousness to conform to that way of wickedness. And so if you're here, if you're listening to this and you're young, you're perhaps a, a child and you have friends and perhaps you see them stealing something or disobeying their parents, dis, disobeying clear instructions about something that they are not supposed to do, and you see them doing this and they say, why don't you do the same thing? You know, my, my mom and dad, they're not here. They will never know. Why, why don't you participate with us? Or perhaps you're a bit older or you're in high school or in college, that age. And there are all kinds of people who uh, are into drugs, parties, underage drinking, um, having uh, sex with no commitments of marriage or anything uh, like that. And they look at you like you're, you're a crazy person, that you don't go with them and do these sorts of things. Why would you not do these kinds of things? Don't you know how great it feels to be doing uh, all these things? Don't you know uh, the kind of pleasures that, you're, that you can get from these things? Why will you not participate with us in all of these things? Or think of, if we just think of society more at large, uh, the way in which... Uh, there's pressure upon the church to give in with the ethics, sexual ethics regard to homosexuality, uh, lust, pornography, promiscuity, uh, that all of these things, why is it that you will not uh, go along with us in all these things? Or perhaps even apart from the area of uh, sexual ethics, perhaps at work, there are unethical practices that everybody in the business, everybody in the field uh, participates in. It's a way to get ahead. It's standard. Everybody expects you to act these ways. And yet you decide not to do it out of, uh, out of uh, respect for God and uh, in obedience to the Eighth Commandment, not to steal from others. And they ask, you know, everyone does this. This is the, the clear, normal practice for the industry. Why will you not do these things? There's always pressure upon the Christian who wants to stand upon the principles of the word to give in to the ways of the world. And this can be very difficult. It can be difficult as you uh, face the scorn of others, ridicule from others, and the, the condemnation. You may lose people that you hoped uh, perhaps would be uh, good friends at some point. And uh, they may never speak to you again. They, they may even slander you to others so that even others will uh, think less of you. This is, this, is some of the, this is just some of the things that every Christian faces in this world today. And what's important for us to recognize, brothers and sisters, is that in these temptations and, and trials and struggles, you are not alone. The church has always faced exactly these kinds of trials. And this is exactly what Peter is speaking about in this passage. In, in his day, the Christians faced exactly the same ridicule for saying no to exactly the same kinds of actions. And they had to face the, the, the prospect of being reviled by others, of having their name publicly maligned, and of having no friends in this world, or at least losing perhaps uh, previous friendships from others. 
And so this is this is exactly what Peter is speaking. This is one of the sources of persecution and suffering that the Christian church had to go through in the first century. And so now after speaking about the way in which Christ suffered and the way in which that provides a foundation for uh, it being better to suffer for doing good than to, for doing evil. And then Peter, after then relating that to even Noah, how Noah did these things and he was uh, vindicated before God, uh, before all, now he applies it specifically to you and shows the way in which your suffering is always like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the Lord Jesus Christ, when he suffered, it was by the condemnation of men who could not deal with the fact that he was righteous in an ungodly world and testified about the world that it was righteous, as John says. Just as Christ suffered in that way, condemned by men, but made alive by the Spirit, so too you must be ready to receive the condemnation of the world, whatever that ends up meaning, receiving whatever consequences that ends up bringing, that you also might live according to the Spirit. That is to say that, that even though man were to condemn you, you must hold fast to your righteousness still, forsaking ungodliness, that you also might live by the Spirit, just like Christ did. So we'll look at this passage this morning under two headings. First, in verses 1 to 3, there are two paths. And then in verses 4 to 6, there are two judgments. There are two paths and two judgments. There is first... With the two paths, there's the path like Christ, and there's the path of the ungodly. And then in verses 4 to 6, there are the way in which these two paths interact. There is the condemnation, the judgment of the wicked path. And then there's also the judgment of the righteous path from the Lord himself. So there are two paths, and there are uh, two judgments. And this really provides the basis for how when you face these kinds of struggles and trials, when you face the prospect of being reviled by all, you can be enabled to stand firm and to hold fast to righteousness when you understand these two paths and these two judgments. So look with me first and again at verses 1 to 3. Notice here, the path, the first path is a path that is related to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a call that Peter gives in light of everything he said about the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, about the example of Noah, now there is a call for you to imitate this example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. There is a, a way in which your suffering is to mirror that of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be like it. Now, there are some ways in which our suffering is not like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is uh, seen very clearly from verse 18 of chapter 3. Christ suffered once for sins. The idea here, there in that word, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, is that it's once and for all. It is a, a unique suffering, the godly, the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. There's a sense in which that suffering is absolutely unique, and yet there is a sense in which that suffering is exactly like our suffering. That if we bear the name of Christ, even though it doesn't atone for sins, Yet there is still a relationship that we have in our suffering to the the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for instance, uh, we don't atone for sin on the cross, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ did tell us that we must pick up our cross ourselves and follow after him. We don't atone for sin, and so in some sense we don't drink the cup of God's wrath. And yet, when James and John 
come to Jesus and they, they say, grant that we would sit at your right hand. Jesus asks, can you sit, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, the clear answer would appear to be no, they cannot drink the cup uh, that, that Christ is going to drink. They say they can, but what does Christ say? He says, you will actually drink from that cup. You, you will drink from the cup of, of wrath in some sense, in the sense that you will uh, be put to death and you will suffer in a way, even though it doesn't atone for sin, you will suffer in a way that is similar to my own suffering. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has said. And so, as Paul says in Philippians 1, it's not just that it's been granted to you to be saved, it's been granted to you also to suffer like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here Peter is saying, Christ has suffered. Now you arm yourselves with the same understanding, the same understanding of the progression of Christ's life, his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension. Arm yourselves with the same understanding. Now notice here the, the word that's used here, the kind of language that's used. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. It's, it's language of doing war. This is not just, uh, you know, just be ready, but actually be prepared for a battle that is coming. You must fight for righteousness and you must fight for righteousness even in the midst of suffering. And when you suffer, you are to arm yourself with particular weapons in order to do battle. Now, the battle that you do is not to vanquish the one who causes you to suffer. It is rather to, with, to arm yourself with spiritual weapons so that when you suffer, you can endure as a good soldier of Christ. That, that is what you are called to do. The, the, the weapons of warfare that we have are not weapons of the flesh. Rather, they are weapons of the spirit. They're weapons related to prayer, the word of God, faith, and repentance. And here, too, notice that the emphasis here is even on the mind. That the, 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 the way in which you are to arm yourself is with the understanding here. You are to think ahead before you suffer you must understand what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. You must understand that the suffering and death that he has received, and you must understand that if you are to follow this Christ, you must also pick up your cross and suffer in the same way that he has suffered. Now, perhaps you're here and you, you've had a, a tremendously blessed life and you, don't, you haven't faced much, much persecution in this way. You've not faced the kind of pressures uh, to... Um, give in to the world, I would think in, in that way it would be very unlikely. It's very common that if you interact with uh, unbelievers that there will be this kind of temptation as long as you are living a godly life. But even if this is the case, this is still very applicable to you because you must understand how to suffer well, not when you suffer, but before you suffer. If you wait to figure out how to suffer well during your suffering, you will not be equipped to suffer well. You must always have this mind uh, among you that you may suffer at any point for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because you are holding on to righteousness and you must be ready at all times to undergo it. Do not think that you can avoid the cross if Christ did not avoid the cross. And be ready. Arm yourself with the same understanding as Christ has suffered, so too you will suffer in this life. Now notice in the second part of verse 1, that he gives, uh, Peter gives a reason. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now this, this phrase is a bit tricky. There are different, a number of different ways that this is, this is understood. But notice a, a couple of things about the, the, the phrase. It's not talking about suffering in general. 
not suffering in any way. It's not that every single person who suffered is ceased from sin. And we know that from the context. Peter is talking about the way in which Christ himself has suffered. And he's saying here, the one who has suffered, not just in any way, but suffered like that, suffered like the Lord Jesus Christ, has ceased from sin. And so this is a, a saying that uh, applies generally to all Christians. There is a sense in which all Christians, when they suffer, they cease from sin. And this, again, is corresponding to the Lord Jesus Christ, though there are, of course, differences. The Lord Jesus Christ has suffered without sin in an ultimate sense. He never sinned at all. But those who suffer like him also, in some ways, cease from sin, just as the Lord Jesus Christ himself suffered with no sin at all. There's a correspondence between our suffering and the way in which it is a ceasing from sin and Christ's suffering as one who bore sin without having committed a single sin at all. And so what does it mean then? How is it that Christians have ceased from sin by their suffering? Now, there's, there's two things that we can say, two, two ways in which this is true. First, all suffering, when endured in a godly way, produces righteousness in the Christian life. It is a training, a discipline, a training for righteousness. And so this is mentioned in James 1, for instance, where he says, you know, brothers, count it all joy as you face trials and sufferings of many kind, knowing that it produces greater faith. Or we saw this as well in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he speaks of the testing of your faith, which uh, is more valuable than gold, though gold is tested by fire, that it would be found to be blameless in the last day. Uh, there, there is a sense in which our sufferings prepare us and train us in righteousness. And in this way, our suffering is a ceasing from sin. But there's also another way in which our suffering is a ceasing from sin. And that is that very often, if we are to suffer for righteousness sakes, if we're to suffer in a godly way, then it means even by its very nature that we have ceased from sin. That that in, in many ways, if we give into the ways of the world, we avoid suffering. But when we suffer for righteousness sake, we do so showing our commitment to be freed from sin. And so there's there's inherently this, this idea in all the examples that I gave above, a child who wants to be faithful to his parents and to uh, obey them when the, the, the other children are going off and doing things they shouldn't do, the high school or college age student who wants to be honoring to God and not uh, go after all of the the, the things that the world goes after with drugs and parties and whatever else, or the, the, uh, those in the workplace who want to honor God by having ethical business practice. In, in all of these situations, there is a commitment to suffer in such a way that there is a ceasing from sin. And it is a, a decision to, to walk on the path of righteousness for the sake uh, of God that is, in this sense, a ceasing away from sin. And this is, uh, in some ways, a... In, in a general statement about what Peter had just said. You are to arm yourself with this understanding. You are to arm yourself with the understanding that you must suffer like Christ did, holding on to righteousness and ceasing from sin, suffering for that sake that you might even be trained through your suffering for greater righteousness. Now notice what Peter says in verse 2. He gives the reason why you should do this, the purpose he says that note that he no longer or that you no longer should live the rest of your time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Here are the two ways are put out before us. There are those who live according to the lusts of men, and there are those who live according to the will of God. You are to suffer like Christ, ceasing from sin, 
that you might walk in the path of life rather than in the path of death, that you would walk according to the will of God and not according to the lusts of men. Now, brothers and sisters, you cannot walk in both paths. It is absolutely impossible. If you are walking in the paths of the lusts of men, you are not walking according to the will of God. If you are walking in the will of God, you are not walking in the path of the lusts of men. You cannot serve two masters here. You cannot serve two masters. If there are hidden sins where you are constantly going off after these things, that would if, if other Christians were to know about them, they would be able to tell that there's simply no difference between you and the world. If this is you, you are not walking on the path of obedience to the will of God. You are walking in the path of the lusts of men. And Peter goes on in verse 3 to describe this uh, in even greater detail. And saying too, not only does he describe it, but he even says, you know, the path of, of the lusts of men is completely useless, empty, and vain. There is simply no benefit whatsoever for walking in the path of the lusts of men. Notice what he says. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Notice he says, whatever amount of time you have spent in walking in this way, it's already been far too much. It's sufficient. So that's the way uh, it speaks in, uh, in the original. Whatever amount of time there has been that's been spent in that lifestyle, it's far too much and you must simply give it up it's it simply will not help you at all now and i, I ask you brothers and sisters uh, if if this is you or if you are, are listening to this and you uh, are not uh, resting in the lord jesus christ for your salvation and you recognize in this description uh, of the way of the lusts of men that this is exactly the way you live i ask you what has it gained you what has it really gained you? You may have all of the pleasures of this world, but I, without even knowing you, can say, if you look into your heart, you will find only emptiness. You will find only emptiness. And you'll wonder why that emptiness is there, why you can never fill it, and yet it will still be there. There is simply, it's simply emptiness to go after the way of the lusts of men. And this is also, this is even a temptation for Christians. You know, Christians sometimes have way too high of a, a view of this other path. Uh, there, there was a time when I was asked, um, someone who was a, a new convert to Christianity and said, you know, in some ways it's better to be um, an unbeliever who's converted late in life because they get to do all these great things. And then at the very end of their life, then they're, they, uh, you know, they've had all these pleasures and yet they still get to be saved in the end. But to think this way is to be way too attached to the ways of the world and the apparent pleasures that they have. They're, they're, those so-called pleasures only lead to death. It, it is uh, very much like uh, what C.S. Lewis has said when he describes the child who is playing in the mud and is so, uh, so enthralled by uh, the mud that he cannot even think about uh, a, a great parad paradise at the beach. It, it's, it's not that the ways of the world give these kinds of pleasures that we should be envious of. It's rather, as C.S. Lewis says, it's that they do not have enough of an appetite for pleasure, that they would settle 
for things that are so trivial. That, that is really the, the difference in the description. So Peter says here, look at whatever amount of time you spent in this, whatever amount of time you spent in this life, it's too much. Let it be done, put it away, and walk in the paths of godliness. Now notice as well, then, he gives this long description with all these adjectives describing uh, the, the way in which um, all, all these various things that describe this way of life, lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. All of these are essentially just a description of uh, an unbelieving party culture. Uh, it's really no different from what people do today. And it's just an amazing thing to think that there's really been no change in the way in which the ungodly behave. There's no difference in the kind of culture that they have. There's no difference in the kind of pleasures that they seek. And there's also no difference then with us in the way in which we as Christians are to respond to it. There, Christians have always been tempted by the kinds of things that we are tempted with today. And it's always for us to say, we are to have nothing to do with this. We're to have nothing to do with drunkenness, with this this innate, just uh, immoral, uh, seeking after all the various kinds of pleasures of the world uh, in all of the immorality that comes with it. Just an excessive, sensual uh, pursuit of pleasure. That's always been the way of ungodliness. And Christians have always faced situations where they have had to say, this is not something that I should do. It's not something that will honor God. The party scene of the first century is essentially the same as the party scene of the 21st century, and Christians ought to have nothing to do with it. And so these are the two ways then, the two ways that Peter has put before us. There is the way of righteousness, the way of suffering, like Christ, and then there is the way of ungodliness, the way that seeks out pleasure uh, simply for pleasure's sake. But notice as well in verses 4 to 6, there are also two judgments. There are two judgments. In verse 4, there's the way in which the unbelievers who are walking in the path of the lusts of men, the ways of the Gentiles, the ways in which they condemn and judge those who do not follow them. That's verse 4. But then notice in verse 5 and 6, there is another judgment that Peter speaks of, where those who judge, those who are the unbelievers who judge the believers, they themselves must give an account to the great judge. And so there are two judgments, and it is this understanding of the two judgments that will help you to be uh, to have a firm foundation when you face this temptation to understand why you are not to go after the one and follow in the one path and rather to follow in the other path. That is to say, though you be condemned by men, the condemnation of God is much worse. If you are condemned by men but justified by God, you are coming out all right. You are, you are, in fact, going to be very blessed in the last day. If you are vindicated, justified, celebrated by men, but condemned by God, you are above all others most to be pitied. The, the understanding in this temptation, the thing that you must keep clear in your mind always, is the fact that there are, when, when people say they will revile you or judge you in various ways, publicly you'll be shamed, whatever else, you must remember that that is not the only judgment that you must take into account. There is another one. There is one who is coming, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So notice what it was said in verse four. Now, these people who go off after all of these lusts, they say in regard, Peter says in regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. They look at you 
just as it was in the first century, so too now it is today. They'll look at you and say, why would you not join us in these things? Don't you realize how great it is to be doing all of these other things? And they're completely shocked that you wouldn't do it. Now, they, they don't just leave it there with, this, with a shock. Notice as well the little last phrase there, speaking evil of you. They will be shocked and then they will speak evil of you. And as is implied later on, they will also then condemn you. That's the, the progression of the judgment of the unbeliever. He'll say, how is it that you could not celebrate this? You, you can't celebrate homosexuality like us? They'll be shocked and then they'll speak evil of you and then they will condemn you. That is the progression and the judgment that comes. And in this, you are to arm yourself with the same understanding of Christ who endured exactly the same condemnation before men, who spoke to the world about its wickedness and the world could not receive it and therefore the world put Christ to death. Now, there are many ways in which we can say that other countries face far more persecution than we do. But being reviled and having people speak evil of you because of your holding on to righteousness, whether it be simply in a school and you don't want to cheat on a test or you don't want to go off with all these other kids who are the popular kids doing these things, whatever it be, even though we do not face the, the kind of persecution in this country by the Lord's grace, or when you know, Christians are thrown into jail, that sort of thing, or even put to death, it is a very real kind of persecution. It is a real persecution to have to, to stand up for what you believe in and to face being reviled in this world. And this is really what Peter is speaking of. The, the situation where Christians are put to death for their faith is a carrying out of this same kind of persecution to the end, to, to, to the, its logical conclusion. If those who revile you for and who are shocked at you for not following in ways of ungodliness, if they had all the power, we would find ourselves in exactly the same situation. And it's important to recognize that because even as we, we recognize we're thankful to God that we don't go through the same kinds of persecutions, you still must in America be very ready to face persecutions in a godly way. You must be ready to receive the revilings of others, to, to understand that, that others will be shocked at you for following in the way of godliness. And you must be ready in this sense, in this way, to pick up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think when we say that we never suffer persecution, we end up not being quite as prepared for the persecutions we do face in this life. We, we do face persecutions in this world. We do. We will always, the Christian church will always face persecutions because there will always be unbelievers who will always be shocked that we don't follow them in the same flood of dissipation and they will revile us. That is always the, the, the way in which Christians suffer. It's the way in which Christ suffered and it is the way in which you will suffer in this life and you must be ready. You must be ready. If you're not ready, if you're not thinking about these things, then it will catch you off guard and you will find yourself saying things that you're ashamed of as you give in uh, to the ways of the world in little ways maybe, but still nonetheless, you'll say things that, or even do things that are not uh, worthy of the gospel and not honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice as well then, there's a second judgment, as I said. If you were to ask, you know, if you were to, to say, you know, it's it's difficult to, to stand in these um in the midst of these kind of temptations, surely it is. That's something we should not uh, uh, think lightly of. It is difficult when um, those around you are going to revile you or whatever else if you're, you have your name publicly shamed. 
Uh, all these things are difficult. However, as Peter has said, there is a second judgment. And this is the one that you must always be aware of and that will help you to be able to face this temptation well. You know, very often we think of the second judgment as being something that will be terrible in some ways. And, um, you know, hopefully you see it as a vindication for uh, yourself if you are truly resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that your sins have been paid for, and that the fruit of your righteousness will be made known to all, and all those who are reviled you will be put to shame. But also there is there is a, a way in which even your thinking about and meditation upon the final judgment and its blessing for you, it's blessing for you. It's actually helpful for the, for you in standing up to temptation in this life now. You are to remember, you are to remember that everyone who speaks evil against you will themselves one day be judged. They'll be judged unless they repent of their sins and become your brother or sister in Christ. They will be judged, which will mean your own vindication. This is exactly what Peter says in verse 5. Those who do this, who speak evil against you, they themselves will have to give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They'll have to give an account to this person. The, the doctrine of the, of the second coming, the final judgment, is not just one of terror. It is even one that's imminently practical for you now. How is it that you can stand firm? How is it that you can stand firm when you are faced with all of these things that, that may come your way, this kind of persecution? You are to remember the final judgment. You are to remember, and it, and it is even to give you, not it's not to give you terror, it's to give you comfort. Comfort that I know, I know that in the last day, I will be vindicated if I follow in this path of righteousness. I know that. And so you can, you can say to me whatever you want. You can revile me in any way you want. You can condemn me in any way you want. I will follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I will remember his words that he said, if I confess him before men, he'll confess me before, before my Father in heaven. And if I deny him before men, he will deny me before my Father who is in heaven. The, the second judgment, the, the, the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, is something that we must always be meditating on. And it is, in fact, very, very practical for us. As with Noah and Christ, so it will be with you. All of the wrongs that they received at the hands of men were made up for and by far greater blessings when God himself vindicated them, particularly when he vindicated the Lord Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. And so the question is, is it's not so much, is it difficult to face the ridicule of others? It's very difficult to face the ridicule of others. Nobody likes to do that. But the question is, Will the fear of man and their ridicule be the determining factor in your life, or will it be the fear of God? That's the question. Which of the two judgments, not only which of the two paths are you wanting to take, which of the two judgments do you respect more? Will it be the judgment of men that they, that they give you now, or will it be the judgment of God on the last day? Those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ recognize the reality of that second judgment, the final judgment the second at the second coming, and they live their lives accordingly. They say with the psalmist, what can man do to me? What, what can he do to me? Or with the Lord Jesus Christ, do not fear the one who after killing the body can do nothing else. Fear the one who after killing the body can throw both body and soul into hell. And so Peter then expands on this in verse 6. Now, verse 6 is a bit tricky in some ways. Uh, there are a number of tricky verses here in this in these couple passages. 
Uh, but notice what he says. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. What does it mean that the gospel was preached to the dead? Now, a couple of things we can say about what this does not mean. It does not mean those who are spiritually dead. It does not mean that the gospel was preached to unbelievers while they're alive on the earth so that they might be converted. We know that because of verse 5. The one whom the unbelievers have to give an account to is the one who judges the living and the dead. The one who judges the living and the dead is a phrase that, that always means those who are alive, really alive, not metaphorically or spiritually, those who are alive, and then contrasting that with those who are actually dead. And so this is actually speaking of the preaching of the gospel to those who are dead. Now, it does not mean as well, as we saw with the, the last passage in, uh, at the end of chapter 3, it does not mean that there is second chance that there's a second chance given to the dead unbelievers. That's not what this is speaking about. It's not speaking about preaching the gospel to those who are dead and unbelievers. This is, uh, as we looked at last week, so too in this week, it's completely contrary to the, to the context. He's not saying that those who revile you and uh, who walk in the lusts of men will in some ways receive all the blessings that you receive. It's completely contrary uh, to the context. What he is speaking about here, though, is believers who have already died, who while they were alive had the gospel preached to them. The idea is this. There are those among you who have died, and they've died in the Lord. They had the gospel preached to them. Now, they may have died young. They may have died having received the judgment of men, as it says in the last next uh, clause in verse 6. They've, they seemingly have not been blessed in this life. Why was it that the gospel was preached to them? Peter says the gospel was preached to these people, those who are whom, whom you know who have died, who died in the Lord, who were judged by men, that even though they are judged by men, as Peter says in the next clause, even though they are judged by men, they might be alive according to the Spirit. Those who have done the most against Christians and who have put them to death, God has preached the gospel to them. He's made sure that they have received the gospel through uh, through the apostles or whoever else he sent out. He's made sure that this would happen so that even when they are judged according to men, they would be made alive according to the Spirit as well. Which which judgment is it that will control your actions? Will you, will you rely on and you put your confidence and faith in this God who does this so that you might be made alive according to the Spirit? Or will you have more deference to the judgment of men even though they themselves will be judged by others. This is, this is what, what has happened. Even those, Peter is saying, even those who have died at the hands of men, they are more blessed. They're blessed. The gospel was preached to them so that even though they would be condemned, they would be made alive by the Spirit. Now, this uh, last clause is uh, very, very similar to the end of verse 18 of, of chapter 3. Notice the way the Lord Jesus Christ is described there, that he is being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Then, then look again then at the very end of verse 6 of chapter 4. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. There are some ways in which what Christ did is absolutely unique. There are a lot of ways in, wh in which what Christ did is, is always paralleled to Christians. You may receive judgment, and this is the way this that this uh, 
what this verse means here, the last clause, and this, is, this does come out in the translation, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. You may be judged according to men in the flesh. You may receive that judgment. Know that Christ received that judgment in his flesh as well. He received that exact same judgment that you've received. And just as he received that condemnation in the flesh, was put to death in the flesh by the, at the hands of ungodly men, and was made alive by the Spirit, so too all of those who follow in the paths of righteousness, who have an eye towards this greater judgment, will be put to death in the flesh, and yet live according to the Spirit exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there are two ways set before you, as Moses says to the people of God in Deuteronomy, I set before you this day life and death. There are only two paths to choose from. It is the path of life and the path of death. And these two are absolutely opposed to one another. Not only are they opposed to one another, but even the way in which they interact shows the difference between the two kinds of judgments. When the path of death interacts with the path of life, the path of death will condemn the path of life. And always, you must recognize, if you are on the path of life, you must be ready to receive the condemnation of the path of death. And the question before everyone this morning is this. Will you seek out the commendation of men, the commendation of men, and receive the condemnation from God? Or will you seek out the commendation that comes from God, even though it means receiving the condemnation of men? There is really no other option, brothers and sisters. All of those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution, and they will face persecution in this way. They will be reviled by unbelievers. It is for us to pick up our cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that he would grant us the grace and the strength to do so. Let's pray. Father, how we do thank you for your spirit. That even though we, we may be put to death, we will be made alive by your spirit, even as the Lord Jesus Christ was made alive by the spirit. How thankful we are, O God that the spirit of the one who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies. How we do plead with you that you would open up our eyes. Lord, so often our eyes are darkened and we can't see past our circumstances. Help us to see, Lord, with the vision of eternity, to, to know the reality of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the vindication that we'll receive in him. And may it be that our minds would often think about this truth, that even as... Uh, the godly in the Old Testament looked for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that so too, with the same eagerness, we ourselves would look to the second coming, and that in so looking, we would find the strength and the, 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 the comfort and the grace to be able to stand firm in this life and to walk in paths of righteousness. Father, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, please give us a five-star review as this will help make the Word of God preached more available to others. Also, if you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com.